well. Um, for those of you guys who are at Sunday school, we, we looked at, you know, the meaning of the Lord's Day, and it's for the enjoyment of the people of God, and I think it's a particular, exquisite joy for us to worship God, to hear His Word, um, and so I'm so excited that we're going to look into it. I want you guys to turn to page four in the bulletins. Uh, first, a quick word. Um, because the text is so long, and uh, I remember in seminary, my professors would always say, you know, don't, make sure you don't preach from a text that's too long. People will fall asleep <laughs> while you read it. Um, but I know that won't happen here, right? Um, so because the text is so long, um, I actually had to do something a little ghetto. If you actually look at the back of our bulletin, um, that's where we have our notes section, right? And actually, the formatting didn't work out, so the page before that is where the title of the sermon is. Um, and so, forgive us for that. Um, and you can write your notes and flip back to the text. All right, so we're going to read the text. We're continuing in our series, uh, The Gospel and the Life of Jacob. And today we're going to look at principally Genesis 27, but I'm going to read a little bit of Genesis 25 just for the sake of context. Um, and so you can follow along with me. When Rebecca's days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And Esau answered, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold, I am old and do not know the day, the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food as your father, uh, for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So Jacob went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were, in her house, which, with, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. 
And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And Isaac said, Here I am. Who are you? My son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? Jacob answered, Because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And Isaac did not recognize him because his hands were hairy, like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. Isaac said, Are you really my son Esau? Jacob answered, I am. Then Isaac said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So Jacob brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So Jacob came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is, is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May, the, may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of wine, of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that he may, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? Esau answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, that I ate of it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But Isaac said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. This is the word of God. Um, Scott, can we cover the... Sorry. All right, so um, it was a long passage. Thank you for your patience. So we're going to basically look at this text... Um, And we're going to look at three points. And so here's my outline. We're going to look first at the longing for blessing. And then number two, we're going to look at the grasping of the blessing. And then number three, we're going to look at the gift of blessing. Okay? So first, the longing for blessing. The central idea, the the thing that drives this entire narrative and creates all this drama in the story is 
a Hebrew word called Barakah. And it appears 14 times in our story. In fact, more times in this chapter than in any other part of the Bible. And that Hebrew word Barakah is translated in the English, blessing. The problem is, though, is that that English translation is kind of weak and it doesn't fully capture um, all the meaning that it has in the Hebrew, right? Because the way we use blessing is kind of, you know, almost overly easy. It's kind of overly casual, right? When someone sneezes, we say, bless you. Uh, When we see something really nice, we say, oh, that was a blessing to me. And we kind of just think of it as just nice words, right? Just merely words or maybe just good thoughts. But is that what's going on in our story? Why is it, if it's just mere words, why is Jacob so desperate to get the blessing? And why is it at the end of the story, why is Esau devastated when he loses the blessing? And, and come to think of it, you know, why is it that bl- the blessing can even be stolen? Right? Have you ever thought of that? Isn't that weird? I mean, why can't it be that Isaac, at the end, just takes it back? Right? He says, you know, I said those words to you, Jacob, but I thought you were Esau, you rascal. And... I take it all back, I say it to Esau. He can't, right? At the end of the story, he can't. That's why there's all this drama. And so clearly there's something going on much deeper, uh, much more profound, and it has to do with this biblical understanding of blessing. And so um, I think it's helpful here to look at, you know, what is it that what is blessing? And there are three aspects, and I want to go through them pretty quickly. First, there's a legal aspect to the blessing. If you look at verse 29 in our story, um, if you look at the second line, uh, Isaac says to Jacob, you know, thinking that it's Esau, he says, uh, be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. you know, so what is Isaac doing here? He's basically saying um, he's arranging the family, right? He's saying, Jacob, you are now the head of the family. You are the leader of the clan. And so it's a kind of last will and testimony, right? Because Isaac is on his deathbed and he's sort of arranging his family, you know, legal inheritance and situations. But it's more than that. There's also... The blessing has this prophetic divine aspect to it, right? It's not just merely human words, but it's the words of God. And I think a great example of this is in Genesis chapter 48, when Jacob blesses his sons. And he gets to his fourth son, Judah, and he blesses Judah. And do you remember what he says to Judah? What does he say? He says, the scepter will never leave you, right? What does that mean? It means that through Judah will come the kings of Israel, right? Through Judah will come the ultimate king, the Messiah. Now, how does Jacob have the authority to say that, right? How can Jacob even dictate those things, right? He has no control over which of his sons will eventually become the royal family. But you see, Jacob is acting as a prophet. And he's speaking the very words of God. And this is what we see in verse 29 in our text. Isaac says to Jacob, Let peoples serve you, And nations bow down to you. What is Isaac saying to Jacob? He's saying, all the world will come to you and they will bow down to you through your seed, through your line, right? And so in that sense, in this divine prophetic sense, the blessing cannot be taken back. Once uttered, because it is the very words of God, it can't be taken back. But there's another aspect to it. And here I think um, it connects to us a little bit more. There's a psychological aspect to the blessing. And here, um, the blessing are words of affirmation and approval. 
And um, this deeply affects us, right? Especially when those words come from our parents, right? Because our parents' words, right, echo in our hearts. And it shapes us, right? It, 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 it dictates the course of our lives. I remember um, when I was a, a, just a kid, um, in second and third grade, I would get C's and D's, right? In all my classes, I got C's and D's. And I would bring home my report card and show it to my mom. And my mom would look at the report card and she would say, your teachers are idiots. <laughs> because, because, Michael, you're a genius. And the thing about geniuses are, is, is that um, they're so smart, the teachers, they, they, they're, they're too smart for the teachers. They can't get it. And that's why, even though you deserve an A, the teachers give you C's and D's. Right? And um, so she would say that to me all the time. She would always say, Michael, you're a genius. You're the smartest kid in your school. And, you know, I was a kid, so I didn't know any better. And so I believed my mom. I said, oh, I'm a genius, right? I mean, all it takes is a little bit of effort. I can get A's anytime I want. I'm a genius. Um, and what happened? Over the course of the years, through junior high and high school, my grades actually got better and better. And I started to get A's, right? Because my mom had just this this absolute confidence in me. She blessed me. Um, but it goes the other way, right? What's the opposite of blessing? It's a curse. And what are curses? Curses is rejection. Curses is, you know, denouncements. Curses is saying you are no good, you're worthless. And I think a great example of this is uh, the story by Amy Tan, The Joy Luck Club, right? A lot of you are familiar with that story. Basically, it's about uh, these Chinese immigrant mothers and the relationship that they have with their uh, very Americanized daughters. And one of these daughters, kind of the main character in the story, um, is June, right? And if you guys see in the movie, it's, uh, the character is played by uh, Ming-Na, right? And so this June character, she tells this story that when she was a little kid, her mom was always just so critical of her, right? And her mom just never believed in her. And, um, you know, kind of the typical thing in Chinese culture, um, her mom would always compete with her friends, right? And, and the way they would compete is they would compare their daughters, right? Which daughter is better, right? And this one daughter, this one friend she had was Waverly, and she was like this chess prodigy. She was just this amazing, accomplished girl. And so June's mom always said, you know, why can't you be like Waverly? Why can't you be as accomplished and as skilled as Waverly? And so one day, she bought this used piano, and she secured the services of this old retired piano teacher who lived upstairs. She sort of exchanged, you know, she cleaned his home, and so she got these lessons. And so, you know, June, just like any typical kid, right, hated those piano lessons, but she quickly discovered that her piano teacher was completely deaf, right? And he had very poor eyesight. And so she found that as long as she played the piano in time, and as long as she kept the beat, the piano teacher had no idea right, that she was playing awfully, right, that she was hitting all the wrong notes. And so one day, it was the day of the recital. And, you know, June's mom was just so excited because this was the moment that she can boast to all of her friends. So she invited all of her friends, and she had been saying all along, oh, my daughter is a piano prodigy, um, and it's going to be just so amazing. And then, you know, June, she didn't practice, she didn't care. And so it went, as you can expect, she got up there, she played the piano, and it was just awful, right? All the wrong notes. And it was a complete embarrassment and just total shame for her mom. And that moment, that day, was a turning point in her life. Because from that day, 
June felt the curse of her mom. That her mom thought that she was no good, that she couldn't accomplish anything, that her, that her mom thought she was, you know, a nobody. And in the story, if you read it, years later, June felt like her mom's words just shaped her life. And everything she tried to do ended up in failure. She went to college, um, but she had to drop out. She wasn't able to get a steady job. She wasn't able to get this, you know, a career. Um, she never was able to have a steady relationship. She never got married. And so because of her mom's words over her, the lack of that affirmation and approval, it absolutely set and shaped her life. And so what am I trying to say here? You know, what's the point? The point is this. All of us need blessing, right? That's the longing of our hearts. Because the blessing is more than just mere words. It's a power in us, right, that shapes us, that echoes in our hearts and sets the course of our lives. So that's point number one, the longing for blessing. Point number two is the grasping of the blessing. And here, um, it's a little play on Jacob's uh, Jacob's name, right, because Jacob is this heel grasper, even in the womb. uh, Jacob has this competitive spirit. He's trying to pull Esau down. Um, and so Jacob is trying to get the blessing, even by trickery, even by lies. And the whole problem begins uh, when Isaac calls Esau to him. See, the thing is, in the ancient Near World, whenever a father blessed, gave the blessing at his deathbed, he was supposed to give a blessing to all of his sons. Right? For example, in Genesis 48 again, when Jacob gives the blessing, he blesses all 12 of his sons, even, the lion, even though the lion's share of the blessing goes to Judah, every single son gets a blessing. And so therefore, Isaac should have also called Jacob, even more so when we remember from last week, right, that God had already spoken. God had already said that through Jacob, the younger son, I will carry out my redemptive plan. And so God had already said Jacob is to get the firstborn blessing, but then Isaac decides he's only going to give it to Esau. So in a kind of sense, he's stealing the blessing away from Jacob. And so why did Isaac favor Esau? You know, in defiance against God, why did Isaac uh, just dote on and love Esau? What tells us in chapter 25, at the very beginning there, in verse 28, Isaac, right, loved Esau. Why did he love Esau? Well, maybe... Isaac saw in his son just a little bit of himself, right? Or maybe he saw in Esau the man he always wanted to be. Because, you know, what was Esau? Esau was this kind of manly man. He was this strapping outdoors, you know, athletic kind of guy. He was the guy that always, when, you know, when they did the foot races or when they did the wrestling, he would always win. And so Isaac looked at his son Esau, and, you know, you could just imagine his pride was just beaming, his heart was just filled, and he says, that's my boy. Look at him, look how strong he is. But when he saw Jacob, he probably felt some embarrassment, right, some shame, because Jacob was a kind of, you know, feminine guy. He was always hanging around in the tents. He was always helping his mom cook. And so Isaac, you know, kind of ignored Jacob. He sort of rejected Jacob. And this created just incredible pain and longing in Jacob. Because what is the greatest, what is the thing that children want most in life? They want to know that their parents 
approve of them, right? They want, to, they want to hear the blessing from their parents. That's why little kids are always going up to their parents and saying, look, mom, look, dad, look what I did, because they want to hear the words of approval. But Jacob never got it from Isaac, right? They would both go to school. They would both draw a picture. They would both go home and show it to their dad. And Isaac would say, my boy Esau, good job, and hang it up on the refrigerator door. But Jacob, he just ignored. He didn't care for. And so therefore, there was this incredible emptiness in Jacob. And this is why Jacob agrees to do this really cockamamie plan to trick his father. You know, a lot of commentators look at the story and they say, what was Jacob thinking? Because doesn't Jacob know that, of course, Isaac was going to find out, right? Just moments after, Isaac was going to know that the whole thing was a fraud. I mean, why would Jacob want to hear a blessing when he knew that the father was saying the words to Esau? And here's the reason why. Because while uh, Isaac was saying the words, and while Isaac was just beaming with pride and joy, can you imagine that Jacob was just soaking it in, right? These are the words from his father that he had never heard in his entire life. These are the words of approval, of recognition, of favor. And so just, just to hear it from his dad, even under false pretenses, was worth it. It was worth it. And this is what drives this whole narrative. If you look, for example, um, on verse 18, um, Jacob comes into the tent and Isaac asks, you know, who are you? Right? In other words, which of my two sons are you? And what does Jacob say in verse 19? Jacob says, I am Esau, your firstborn. But notice the exact same interchange happens at the end of the story. In uh, verse 32, Isaac asks the exact same question. Who are you? And what does Esau say? Esau says, I am your firstborn Esau. Notice it's exchanged, right? Notice it's reversed. Jacob says, I am Esau, your firstborn. And then Esau says, I am your firstborn Esau. Some of you are saying, well, you know, what's the deal? You know, who cares? Maybe it just got switched around. Well, if you look at Hebrew narratives, right, kind of the art of Hebrew narratives is that whenever you have parallel dialogues, anytime there are differences, that's where the meaning lies. And uh, Robert Alter, who is a renowned Hebrew scholar, who's actually a professor right here uh, at UC Berkeley, he wrote a commentary on Genesis, and he says that the accent in these kind of situations, the emphasis falls on the last word, right? The accent falls on the last word. So when Isaac says, who are you? Esau says, I'm your firstborn. I am Esau. I'm Esau, right? And when Isaac says to Jacob, who are you? What does Jacob say? Jacob says, I am Esau. He, he gets... He says the lie first, right? He gets over the unpleasantness first. And then he says, I am your firstborn. I am your true firstborn. You shouldn't be paying attention and doting and loving on Esau, but you should be paying attention and loving me. I'm your true firstborn, right? And so you could just hear just the incredible pain and anguish and sort of the pathos behind Jacob. And this is why he goes for this crazy plan. And so they hatch this plan. And it's actually a really exciting story, especially if you read it for the very first time. You're, you're, you're holding your breath. You know, is Jacob going to get caught? Is Isaac going to figure it out? But of course, Jacob pulls it off. And how does he do it? 
He does it by dressing up like Esau, right? He does it by, by trying to appear like Esau. And here is the application, okay? Here's where it connects to our lives. We are all like Jacob. We are all longing, hungry for the firstborn blessing. And we are looking for it from the world. And how do we get it? We get it by dressing up like Esau. Because the world only favors the Esau's of this life, right? And some of us do it quite literally, right? Some of us do it by buying clothes that we can't really afford. Some of us do it by uh, driving a certain kind of car. Some of us do it by, by trying to buy a home that we really can't afford. Why? Why are we trying to have a certain kind of image? Why are we trying to be so desperately cool? Because we're saying to ourselves, if we look good, if we have a certain image, then the world will bless us, right? We're dressing up, we're driving a certain kind of car, and we're saying desperately, bless me, look at me, pay attention to me. Some of us, you know, do this um, through our academic life or through our careers. Uh, Quite recently, excuse me, uh, quite recently, um, Christina, my wife, went to her old church's reunion. And so these are people that she hadn't seen in years, and um, she went there, and there's one particular parent who she hadn't seen, you know, him and his son, she hadn't seen in, like, over a decade. And the first thing he said to her was, did you know that my son is a medical doctor? That's the first thing he said, right? He didn't say, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? He said, my son is a medical doctor. And why was he saying that? Because he was getting the firstborn blessing through the achievements of his son, right? Through the achievement, the fact that his son was a medical doctor. He couldn't wait to get to uh, the church reunion to tell all the people who didn't yet know his son was a medical doctor. Now, some of us not only do this um, through purchases that we really shouldn't make, some of us do this not only through careers and academics, but we also do this through our religiosity and through our morality. And this is very important. I need to say this particularly for those of us in the church, um, I remember uh, when I was a college student, um, I went on a short-term mission trip to Uganda, and I was there for a month. And uh, I remember um, I was staying there with this missionary family, and uh, for one week, this other short-term team from uh, New York came. And because of limited space, um, we all had to sleep, at least the guys, we all had to sleep in this one large room. And uh, I remember um, that, you know, the busyness of the day, so many activities to do, that sometimes you didn't have time to do your devotionals, right? You didn't have time to read the Bible and pray. And I had made a commitment that was every day I was going to spend a good chunk of time in prayer, reading the scriptures. And so this one particular night, early on when the team was there, after everyone had gone to sleep, I turned on my little kerosene lamp and uh, kind of in the corner of the room and I tried to very quietly, very inconspicuously, I read my Bible and then I I had a time of prayer. And the next day, I remember um, the team leader came up to me and he said, Michael, I just want to tell you that I so respect and admire you because when everyone is asleep and everyone is just resting, you were uh, seeking God in prayer. And, you know, that's just such a picture of godliness and holiness. And I remember just feeling so good when he said that, you know, because I was the godly guy. You know, that was my reputation. And, um, 
And so I remember the very next night, I made sure that after everyone went to sleep, I turned on the kerosene lamp, and I read my Bible, and I prayed. And, you know, I, I didn't pray so loud that it would wake everyone up, because, you know, that would be rude. But I just muttered just loud enough to make sure that I knew that they would kind of overhear me a little bit, right? And what was I doing? Was I seeking God? Was I longing for His presence? No. I was looking for the firstborn blessing, right? I was trying to get it through my religiosity, through my spirituality, from that short-term mission team. And so, all, you know, so much of the world's problems come from this. The fact that we are all looking for the blessing, right? All of the jealousies, the obsessiveness, the competitiveness, the angers, the fears come from the fact that we're all so hungry for the blessing. And the thing is this, even if we get it, we're still empty, right? We're still incomplete. Now, some of you are saying, why can't we just bless ourselves, right? I understand that, you know, so many problems come when you try to get the blessing from others. But why can't you just bless yourself, right? That's what pop psychology tells us. That's what Oprah tells us, right? Just bless yourself. And here's why you can't do that, okay? It just won't work. You can't bless yourself. I remember um, in college, um, Christina had this friend um, who, her freshman year in the dorms, uh, her name was Araceli. And you know when you're living in the dorms, you're sort of living in close confinement, right? So you sort of get to know that person, their lifestyle really well. And so Araceli uh, was a girl who kind of struggled with low self-esteem. Um, she, didn't, she, didn't, she wasn't very attractive, right? She kind of had, you know... Um, poor skin, and she wasn't very fit, and uh, she was kind of socially awkward. So, you know, she had all these things that were going against her, and the way she tried to remedy the problem, okay, and I'm not joking here, is that every morning she would wake up, and she would go to her mirror, and she would say these positive affirmations to herself. She would say, Araceli, you're beautiful. Araceli, you're so smart. Araceli, you're great. And she, every morning she would kiss her image in the mirror, Right? And she had these little uh, posters all over her side of the room that said, Araceli is awesome. Araceli is hot. Why are you guys, some of you guys, chuckling? Because you can't bless yourself. Only crazy people bless themselves, right? Only crazy people say, everyone thinks I sing badly, poorly, but I know I am the world's greatest singer, right? You can't do that. You have to get the blessing, not from yourself, but it has to come from someone above, right? It has to come from someone greater than you. Someone on the outside has to say, you're good. You're, I approve. You know, you're great. All right, so uh, that's point number two, the grasping of the blessing. And here we finally get to the third point, the gift of the blessing. And um, how do we get the blessing, right? We need the blessing, but we can't get the blessing from the world. So how do we get this blessing? Well, I want to say two points here. The first point is that the blessing is ultimately a gift. And I want to draw your attention uh, to verse 33. Um, Isaac discovers that he's been tricked, right? That Jacob has stolen the blessing. And he's just going off, right? Oh, Jacob, that crook, that rascal. But then what does he say at the end of verse 33? He says, yes, and he shall be blessed. 
What's going on? Well, you know, part of it is, again, what I said earlier, right, that once the blessing is given, it cannot be revoked. It cannot be taken back. But I think Isaac is going further than that. I think Isaac realizes something going on even deeper because, you see, all of his life, he had been opposing God by favoring his older son Esau, right? He had been following the values of the world, right? Because the world said the older son, the firstborn son, is the greater son, is the more valuable son, right? And Esau was this manly man, and so Isaac had shown favor to him. But God had said, I will show my favor and my grace to the younger son. And I think at this moment, when he realizes he's been tricked, that when he tries to give the blessing to Esau, in the end he gives it to Jacob, it's his acknowledgement that God is a God of grace. That God bestows his blessings not based on merit, but as a gift, as a free gift, right? So that's, that's the first aspect. The first thing we need to know is that the blessing is a gift. But the second thing we need to know is that the true blessing comes only from God. You see, what, what Jacob had been doing is that he had been looking for the blessing from the wrong person. He had been longing for blessing from his father. And even after he got the blessing from his father, did that solve his problems? Did he find the peace and the joy that he was looking for? No, he was all the more restless. And we're going to continue to look at Jacob's life. And we see that Jacob's life is just full of tragedy, full of longing, full of angst. Why? Because the father's blessing was not enough. He was looking for something else. And we see that in Genesis 32. At the, at, near the end of Jacob's life, he has this mysterious encounter with a man in, in the night. And he wrestles with this man, right? And uh, while he's wrestling, he, he realizes that the man he's wrestling with is God himself. And what does Jacob say? Do you guys remember? Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me, right? I will not let you go until you bless me. You see, the, the thing that he had been looking for only comes from God. And so God gives him the blessing. And here's the question. How did Jacob get the blessing? And how do we get the blessing? Well, I think, let's look at the story. I think the clue is in the story. If you look at this whole, you know, cockamamie, crazy, trickery plan that Rebecca hatches, what's the only thing that, Jake, that makes Jacob pause? What's the only thing? Jacob says, what if Isaac curses me, right? And what does Rebecca say? It's really quite remarkable. Look in verse 12. Rebecca says, oh, I'm sorry. What is, this is what Jacob says, right? Jacob says um, in verse 12, perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing, right? So that's the worry about Jacob. And you know, the funny thing is this, Jacob actually deserved the curse, right? He's a rascal. He's lying, you know? He deserves the curse. But what does Rebecca say? The most remarkable thing. She says in verse 13, very unusual, almost chilling. She says, let your curse fall on me. Let your curse fall on me. Jacob, you get the blessing, and I will get the curse. What was Rebecca saying? You know, did she even know what she was saying? I mean, can you even transfer the curse? You know, I think Rebecca here, she's just saying whatever it took to get Jacob to go along with the plan. But here's the thing. It's a clue. Because it points forward to the true blessing. Because, you see, what Rebecca says here is a picture of what Christ does for us. What does the Bible say? The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ 
is the true firstborn son, right? In Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You see, Jesus Christ, from the very beginning of time, was in the presence of the Father, and he eternally enjoyed the firstborn blessing, the approval, the affirmation, the love of the Father. But Jesus Christ, you know, gave up his firstborn status, and he came down to earth, and when he went to the cross, he lost the Father's blessing, right? He lost the firstborn blessing. And what does he say on the cross? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it's very unusual because Jesus, throughout all the Gospels, he always refers to God as what? Father, right? But on the cross, what does he say? He refers to God as God. Why? Because he had been cut off. He had been rejected, right? He received the curse. And this is what Galatians 3, and let's put it up there on the, on the screen. This is the way Galatians 3 um, speaks of what Christ did on the cross. Christ redeemed us from the cross. I'm sorry. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, that is the cross, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, Jesus Christ is our true and ultimate Rebecca. Rebecca didn't know what she was saying, but Jesus says, you know, let the curse fall on me. And because Jesus is our substitute, we get the firstborn blessing. Um, There's this very unusual passage in Hebrews 12. The writer to the Hebrews is speaking to the church, and he says this very unusual line. And, and, you know, it's it's startling, but but you don't get it unless you sort of read it in light of this story in Genesis 27, the writer to the Hebrews says, to the assembly, to the church of the firstborn. Isn't that amazing? The church is a group, a gathering of firstborn sons. If you are in Christ, everyone here is a firstborn. Everyone has a firstborn blessing. Everyone has a firstborn status. And I know that some of you at this point are saying, well, that's nice. You know, I understand, as a Christian, I have the firstborn status, I have the firstborn blessing, but I still feel restless. I still feel empty. You know, I don't, I don't really feel this great peace and joy that you're talking about. I feel like Jacob still, you know, striving for the blessings of the world. And, uh, you know, I think here is where the gospel really meets your life. Okay, and I want you to listen carefully here. This is where the gospel transforms your life, all right? Listen carefully. The firstborn blessing is not only something that is a legal status, but it's something that's true experientially, okay? Let me say that again. It's very important. Okay, the gospel, the fact that we are firstborn sons is not only something that we know with our minds, but that's something that we feel deeply in our hearts, okay? And um, how does this happen? It happens through the Holy Spirit. And this is the way Paul writes of it in Romans 8. Let's put it up there on the screen. Romans 8, Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We can take it down. So what is this text saying? The text is saying that the Holy Spirit makes our sonship real to us. I think a great example of this is given by Jack Miller. Um, Jack Miller is um, he's, he's deceased now. He was a mentor of Tim Keller's. He, by the way, is the main author of the, the book we're going through, the Gospel Transformation Workbook. And he gave this great illustration. He says, imagine that there's a father and a son, and they're walking along a path. All of a sudden, the father turns around to his young boy. He picks his son up, and he hugs his son. He kisses his son. He just loves on the son. And then he puts his son back down and they continue walking along the path. Did anything change legally when the father picked his son up? No, right? The son was always a son. His sonship was never in doubt. But experientially, in the heart, all the world's difference, right? Because when the father picked up his son, the son felt, experienced, it became true, the fact that he is the beloved son. And that... Listen carefully. That is what the Holy Spirit does in your life. We don't often talk about the Holy Spirit, and you know, I think that's my fault. Um, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit so much more, but that is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit makes the sonship, the love of the Father, real in your heart. And some of you are saying, well, that's wonderful. That's great. How can I get this, this, this love? How can I get this blessing in my heart? And here's how. The Holy Spirit uses disciplines of grace. What are the disciplines of grace? Well, they are reading the Bible, times of prayer, times of repentance, coming to worship on Sunday. Not only that, but, you know, going to Sunday school, you know, going to small group, um, enjoying fellowship with other Christians. You know, I, I think a lot of Christians have this attitude that all those other things, like reading the Bible or going to Sunday school, that's kind of like Christianity plus, Right? That um, that's kind of like just like the frosting on the cake. It's you know it's good and it's enjoyable, but if you miss it, what are you missing out on? You're missing out on the father picking you up and hugging you and kissing you. Do you understand? It's the disciplines of grace. It's how the Holy Spirit makes the sonship real in your heart. You know, don't dismiss this. You know, don't 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 take this lightly. All right, so let me close by saying that when you are filled up with, this, with the Father's blessing, only then will you be free. You know, Paul speaks of a spirit of slavery, and that's what you are when you don't have the Father's blessing. You're a slave. You're looking for the blessing from the world. But when you have the blessing, you'll be filled up, and you won't matter. It won't matter if people look at you poorly. It won't matter if you don't have the most fabulous career. It won't even matter if you never get married because you have the Father. And I want to close with this one verse. In Genesis 12, um, God comes to Abraham and he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Right? I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. And I think as Christians, we sort of take that verse as a kind of, kind of glib slogan. Yeah, be, a, you know, be blessed to be a blessing. But there's so much deep meaning behind that, you know? I think Genesis 27 is the backdrop that when you get the Father's blessing you will finally be able to truly be a blessing in this world, in this life. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we uh, praise you. 
We thank you for the gift of blessing that we have in Jesus Christ, who is our substitute. But, O Lord, we confess, just like the song, help our unbelief because the blessing is not real to us. Um, We don't really feel it. And I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would make it real in our hearts and in our lives through this message, through the songs, and through the disciplines of grace. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would pick us up and hug us and kiss us and let us know that we are truly your sons. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.